A very warm welcome to London School of Economics. On uh, doubt this you've spotted that it's quite a cold evening. Uh, particularly impressive turnout. I really am um, once again impressed by people's determination to come to these events despite the weather. And I think we've got an enjoyable evening ahead of us. Uh, uh, Christia Friedland has actually just got off, not just got off, but has recently got off a plane from New York. So I think whatever you've suffered, I think her six-hour delayed plane fight says a lot about her determination as well. Um, so we're very pleased that she's here. <clears throat> My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm uh, director of Polis, which is the journalism think tank here at the London School of Economics. I'm also head of the Department of Media and Communications. So we're very interested in the work that Christia does, partly as a journalist and writer, but also her interest in globalisation, and also, frankly, her interest in filthy rich people. Um, Christia is currently head of uh, Thomson Reuters Digital, but she's also worked formerly at uh, illustrious places like the Financial Times. She's from Canada, so deeply unimpressed by our um, confusion over this weather. She was educated at places like Harvard and Oxford. Strangely, she's managed to survive uh, in her career without being educated here at the LSE. Um, now, according to Oxfam this week, the 100 richest people in the world have amassed enough wealth, which they put at $240 billion, to end extreme global poverty four times over, according to, to Oxfam. Now, these are the kind of people that Christia has been talking to uh, for her new book, which is called Plutocrats, The Rise of the New Global Super-Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. She's going to talk about that for about half an hour and then take questions and discuss it with you. So, with no more ado, over to Christia Freeland. Thank you very much, Charlie, and thanks everyone for coming tonight. Um, uh, as Charlie said, my flight was delayed for six hours, so it left at 2.30 in the morning, so that gave me an early sense of what things were like here. I really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll talk for about half an hour, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, I've been thinking and talking about my books so much, I've become a monomaniac. So basically, if my kids ask for chicken nuggets for supper, I will find a connection with plutocrats so I can go on forever. So I've asked him to let me know, and then I'm happy to discuss further. Uh, and just finally to uh, Charlie's point about the LSE, you're quite right, Charlie, that that is a grave oversight. Uh, my next book that I'm working on is a biography of George Soros, and of course the LSE had uh, a very fundamental intellectual role in his development. So I'm not leaving you guys out. Entirely. So, plutocrats, what's happening? Uh, I, my book was published in October, and I've been sort of out on the trail talking about it for a few months now. And one of the questions that I get asked a lot and initially annoyed me, um, but then I came to really welcome because it allowed me to explain some things, was, come on, why are you writing about these guys? Haven't the rich always been with us? What's the big deal? And I came to really love that question because the truth is things are different now. Sure, there have always been rich and poor, but the very striking thing and, and really sort of the, the central 
issue that prompted me to write my book and that my book explores is the fact that we have seen in the past three decades, chiefly in the Western world, but actually around the world, this huge explosion in income inequality. And the gap has grown, that, that chasm has grown most of all between those at the very, very top and everybody else. So to give you a little bit of a sense of how, how that gap has grown, where we are now, I'm just going to give you a few numbers. So uh, in the 1970s, in the United States, the top 1% accounted for roughly 10% of the national income. Today, they account for between 20 and 25%, sort of depending on the year. What's even more striking, though, is if you take the top 0.1%, so the top 10% of the 1%, they are now close to, in the United States, 8% of the national income. So the top 10th of the 1% in the U.S. is now taking a share of the national income almost, you know, cl pretty close to where the whole 1% was in the 70s. And I'm old enough that, for me, the 70s aren't that long ago. Uh, to give you another sense of these things, if you take the wealth, if you took it in, in 2005, that's when these numbers were calculated by Robert Reich, the former Secretary of Labor in the United States, if you took the wealth in 2005 of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, that was about equal to the wealth of the bottom 40% of Americans, or 120 million people. So two guys, 120 million people. Now, I first sold this book to my publishers in September 2008. And if you think back, you'll realize that was a fairly significant moment. And so I sold the book, I was very happy, and then the financial crisis happened. And, you know, being a caring human being, I was very sad because it was the end of the world as we know it. Um, but in my selfish, self-interested part of me, I was horrified because I thought, okay, this is it. Plutocracy is over. I'm going to have to write a different book. And I was so sure that the financial crisis marked the end of this phenomenon that I actually wrote a second book proposal. It was going to be called Survivors, and it was going to be sort of about who made it out of the crisis. But then a funny thing happened. You know, very, very quickly, it became apparent that the crisis hadn't changed those basic contours. If anything, and I think, you know, we'll see as the numbers are calculated for 2012, 2013, you know, we may be seeing a continued upsurge in this income inequality. Uh, one sign of that is that really, and again, I'm talking about the United States, but I will sort of globalize the argument later on, um, you could call the 2009-2010 recovery the 1% recovery. So the real sort of data geeks of income inequality, especially at the very top, are a couple of French economists called Emmanuel Sayas and Thomas Piketty, and they do this data series which they renew every year, and when they did it for 2009-2010, they found that 93% of the economic recovery in the United States went to the top 1%. What was even more striking was they found that more than a third, so 93% of the recovery in income between 2009-2010 went to the top 1%. Very striking. Now, 
one-third of that recovery in income went to the top 0.01%. And for people in that very uppermost slice, they gained an average of $4.2 million per household. So Barack Obama actually was a pretty great president for the 1%. A final number to give you a sense of how things are changing. This comes from Warren Buffett, who has, he's sort of a class, he uh, describes himself sometimes as a class trader. Uh, so he was on the John Stewart show a couple, maybe a month and a half ago, talking about this. And as he put it, he said, you know, this rise in income inequality has kind of snuck up on people. People haven't really noticed. But the number that he cited um, was he said, if you look at the wealth of the 400 richest Americans, in 1992, their combined wealth was $300 billion. In 2012, it was $1.7 trillion. It's quintupled in that period. And certainly the middle class, the median American household, has seen nothing of the sort, has either been stagnant or seen a decline, depending on which measures you use. So that's pretty striking. What I've also found striking uh, is that when we talk about income inequality, there tends to be, and this is maybe particularly in the United States, but, but I think more broadly, um, a little bit of an aversion to talking about where the real action in terms of the numbers is, which is at the very top. There's much more of a preference to talk about it in much broader terms. And I was interested in why that might be the case. And I talked to one of the economists who, economists who has been a long-term student of this phenomenon. And this is how he explained to me what happens. This is a guy called Branko Milanovic. Uh, he is a Serb who is now at the World Bank in Washington. And Branko wrote, said to me, I was once told by the head of a prestigious think tank in Washington, D.C., that the think tank's board was very unlikely to fund any work that had income or wealth inequality in its title. Yes, they would finance anything to do with poverty alleviation, but inequality was an altogether different matter. Why? Because my concern with the poverty of some people actually projects me in a very warm glow. I am ready to use my money to help them. Charity is a good thing. A lot of egos are boosted by it, and many ethical points earned, even when only tiny amounts are given to the poor. But inequality is different. Every mention of it raises, in fact, the issue of the appropriateness or legitimacy of my income. And I think that's a very powerfully and well-made point and something that we need to bear in mind in all of these discussions. So what's... What's going on, and how different is it from the previous historical experience? Just to give you one more data point to think about that, uh, I'll tell you about a sort of historical study that actually Milanovic, who I just quoted, did. Branko set out to find who was the richest person who ever lived. Uh, and if you are an academically-minded person, I urge you to go find his paper and read it. It's quite fun. He sort of goes through history and talks about the pharaohs, and he talks about the Renaissance princes. Uh, he talks about the Romans. He talks about the American robber barons. Also, since this is an academic setting, I'm going to stipulate 
There are all kinds of difficulties about making that comparison, right? You know, how do you compare owning slaves with owning an iPhone? And Branco is careful. He talks about all of that. So read his paper and decide for yourself if you agree with his methodology. But at the end of the day, he comes to the view that the richest person who ever lived, and that's just not today, it's in human history, is Carlos Slim, the Mexican billionaire. Uh, to me, that's a very interesting result because it speaks both to the globalization of the plutocracy and of wealth today and really to the fact that we're experiencing something quite different in, in terms of the sheer distance than what people have experienced before, maybe ever. So what, what are the drivers? What is causing this huge gap? What I found as I was researching my book, talking to economists, was that question was the surest way to understand a person's and economist's political inclinations. And so speak to economists who tend to be, speak to economists sort of of a more conservative persuasion. And as a group, they're not too keen to think too much about income inequality. But the ones who do will lean very heavily on uh, the sort of the, the explanations about the economic forces happening in the world. Uh, the technology revolution, skill-biased technological change is a way economists like to talk about it. Um, globalization, the winner-take-all phenomenon that we're seeing in industries driven partly by the technology revolution and globalization. If you talk to economists with a more liberal or leftish tinge, you tend to hear from them explanations that are more about the politics. So unions becoming weaker, a culture which permits higher CEO compensation than a previous generation may have been tolerant of, deregulation, particularly of financial services, privatization. Um, and actually, uh, sort of interestingly, you're starting to see some of these arguments played out as well at, at the policy level, because what explanation you come up with maybe influences what kind of policy response you have to income inequality. My conclusion really was, um, perhaps unsatisfyingly for any polemicists here, um, that it's all of those things. It's de I, I think you cannot discount the underlying economic forces. And a really powerful argument for me about why those underlying economic forces are so significant is you are seeing an increase in income inequality around the world. It's most pronounced in the United States and in the UK, but you're also seeing it in continental Europe. I mean, even France, which for a long time uh, was, you know, the great academic outlier causing sort of jokes among economists about how, oh, you know, those French, there they are being different again. Um, you've seen an increase there. You're seeing income inequality increasing even in the Nordic countries, income inequality at the very top in my own native Canada, which sees itself as more progressive in the United States. At the very top, it's increased almost as much as in the U.S., and you're also seeing it in the emerging markets. So the only big exception is Brazil, but income inequality in Brazil was so high prior to Brazil really diving into globalization, it's hard to see how it could have gone further. But you are seeing it rising in China, in India, in Russia. So I, I think it's hard, given the global nature of what's going on, 
it's hard for me to buy into arguments that I will sometimes hear, you know, say an American economist saying it is this legislative change that happened in the United States in 1987 that's driving most of, of what is actually a global phenomenon. Having said that, the politics definitely makes a difference, um, and you see that most in what happens to post-tax incomes. So on some measures, Sweden actually has higher pre-tax income inequality, or at least as high as the United States. But of course, the post-tax outcome is very, very different. So the way a society deals with it can have a very, very significant impact. But I do think um, that particularly the economists on the left who are concerned about it, who are maybe worried about accepting that underlying economic forces are drivers are making a big mistake because to me what is the most the hardest part about the surge in income inequality is the extent to which some of it anyway is connected with positive forces particularly the technology revolution right I mean that's it's great I I, I love my iPhone I'm addicted to Google um, and yet these forces really are reshaping economic rewards in society. And I think failing, failure to grapple with that part of what's going on is going to lead to an incomplete answer. Who are the people who are at this very, very top of the distribution? Who are the people who are the 1%, the 0.1%? My sort of shorthand description of them was to say that this is about the rise of the global alpha geeks. Uh, so they are geeks because actually this is an extremely numerate, generally very well-educated elite. And what was interesting to me to find was that that holds around the world. So when you think about sort of the kinds of tribes among the plutocracy, you know, the financiers, the technologists, you would assume that they are pretty numerate. You, you need tremendous mathematical skills to succeed in those fields. But what I found quite interesting is that's true also of the Chinese. Uh, it's true quite often of the Indians. If you think of Russian oligarchs, if you do it all, you probably imagine, you know, a guy possibly in a leather or fur coat with, you know, some gunmen on one side and a couple of supermodels on the other side. <laughs> and you would be right. But he probably <laughs> also has a PhD in math or physics. Um, some of my first um, work as a journalist was writing about the rise of Russian capitalism. And a majority, majority of that first generation of oligarchs said to me, you know, the reason I'm a billionaire is because being Jewish, I wasn't allowed to pursue a PhD in physics. And they would love to laugh about that and say, you know, thank God for anti-Semitic quotas in Soviet universities, otherwise I'd be some starving academic in Novosibirsk. Um, so so, so there, there is that strain of real numeracy and, and seeing the world that way. Um, there is also the alpha element, right? And the particular kind of alpha quality that I think we see in the, plut in the plutocracy today is an ability to take and to manage risk. Um, something very characteristic, I think, of the economy we all inhabit, very true of the economy these guys inhabit, is it's a world of extreme change and extreme uncertainty. Uh, and the people who are succeeding at the very, very top are buffeted by that uncertainty 
and they're the ones who find a way to embrace it and to just keep going when maybe a normal person would have stopped. So to tell you another Russian story, um, Viktor Vexelberg, uh, who together with Len Blavatnik built a big metals empire and they became partners in BPTNK, was talking to me about their sort of early days. And actually they started, true to this story, Vexelberg, has a math and engineering degree, and they started building computer software for the oil industry. And he talked about sort of rising and becoming richer and richer. And he said, you know, one of his partners of of the early days had dropped out, had decided to sell out when he had a million dollars. This was the early 90s in the Soviet Union. A million dollars was a lot of money. And yet to Vexelberg, it was just unbelievable that a person would choose to do that. Um, And he had other sort of stories about kind of at each stage he would decide to keep going and some of the other guys would stop. And I think that's very characteristic about the ones, you know, who accumulate the real hundreds of millions, of billions. And, you know, think about it for yourself. If you had a hundred million dollars, would you really keep on going to work at six o'clock in the morning? You know, would you keep on risking that money? Uh, The billionaires are the people who decided to keep on doing that for whatever set of complex, not always necessarily wholesome psychological reasons. Um, Another guy who's an investor in hedge funds, he runs a big investment fund. that It's a fund of funds. And I asked him, how do you choose which hedge fund manager to back? Uh, And he says, well, I I talked to them, and I want to see what kind of a person it is. And I thought, oh, you know, it would be like hard work, you know, good judgment, all that. And I said, well, what's the quality? He says, I want someone who has a terrible relationship with an overbearing father. Uh, because that person, he felt, would, be moti- would never feel able to stop and would be neurotically motivated to continue to succeed, to please the unpleasable father. So I felt I should go home and yell at my children or something. Um, Another quality um, which is really significant is, and this is, this is pretty new, and this speaks to the globalized nature of our economy, is this is a globalized elite. Um, one of them said to me, we are the people who know, our flight at- who know flight attendants better than we know our own wives. And I immediately knew that meant he wasn't a super plutocrat, because of course you wouldn't have flight attendants, you would have your own private jet. Um, Another guy, Glenn Hutchins, he is the co-founder of Silver Lake, uh, which is the private equity group that's based in New York and California, investing mostly in technology. They're in the news a little bit right now um, because they're talking with Michael Dell about doing a buyout of Dell. So Glenn said to me, A person in Africa who runs a big African bank and went to Harvard Business School has more in common with me than he does with his neighbors, and I have more in common with him than I do with my neighbors. The circles he moved in, Hutchins said, are defined by interests rather than geography. Beijing can look a lot like New York. You see the same people, you eat in the same restaurants, you stay in the same hotels. We are much less place-based than we used to be. What I especially loved about that comment, which was absolutely sincere, is Beijing doesn't actually look a lot like New York. (laughs) Beijing looks very different from New York. Um, But the experience of these guys is that they're really similar. 
because you know they go from the Four Seasons Hotel in New York to the Four Seasons Hotel in Beijing to the Four Seasons Hotel in Shanghai to the Four Seasons Hotel in Mumbai. They have the same menus even, maybe with you know a few dishes for local color, um, and they eat. They dine with the same people. Um, I had I was having breakfast in New York with Dominic Barton, who's the managing director of McKinsey, who is a Canadian who built most of his career in Asia, who is now based in London, but his secretary is still in Singapore. Uh, and we were in New York, and he st- saw Steve Schwartzman, the co-founder of Blackstone, uh, and he said, you know, hi, Steve. And they had seen each other most recently six weeks ago in Shanghai, and we're next going to see each other in Uh, I think it was Buenos Aires. So it's that, you know, you're in different cities, they all look the same, and you're actually seeing the same group of people wherever you go. The other quality, and this is a thing which I think um, particularly people who are concerned or critical about the rise of income inequality uh, find uh, difficult to confront is this is actually a group which Emmanuel Saez, the French economist who's now at Berkeley, who's the real data jock I referred to, he calls them the working rich. And if you compare today's super elite with, say, the super rich of the Gilded Age of the 1920s, you know, maybe, let's think, Downton Abbey people, um, these are people who made their own fortunes and who continue to work for a living. Uh, There was a recent study just published... Uh, I just uh, was at the presentation of this paper at the American uh, Association of Economists in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, led by Steve Kaplan at the University of Chicago, where they analyzed the Forbes 400 billionaires. And they found that in 1982, 40% of the people on that list were, as they defined them, running the business that they built. Now, that doesn't mean that the person started in absolute poverty. So that would include a person like Bill Gates, whose father was an affluent lawyer, but who didn't inherit Microsoft for him. Someone like Warren Buffett, father was a congressman, but he built Berkshire Hathaway himself. So 1982, only 40% had built their own business. In 2011, 69% of the people on the Forbes 400 list were running a business that they had built themselves. So you are really seeing a sort of a meritocratic strain in the global super elite. And those numbers are very similar in the UK. To me, the next really important question is, what is the relationship of these people whose wealth is so disproportionate to the wealth of everybody else? What is their relationship with the rest of us? And there are a lot of paradoxes there. On the one hand, partly because of the culture of a place like Silicon Valley, partly because, you know, these aren't people who inherited their money from their great-great-great-grandfathers. There is a sense of egalitarianism, a sense that we're all the same. One of the lines that I like that embodied this the most is Bill Gates was at MIT in 2010, gave a talk, and one of the kids there, and I admire this kid's chutzpah, says, okay, come on, what's it like to be a billionaire? And Gates says, and I'm going to read you the line because I liked it so much. He says, well, the marginal return for extra dollars does drop off. I haven't found any burgers at any price that are better than McDonald's. 
after a few million or something, it's all about how you're going to give it back. So really, you know, actually not that different to be us. I mean, I'm assuming there are no billionaires here. Um, or to be Bill Gates. Um, similarly, I went and interviewed Eric Schmidt, who at the time was still the CEO of Google, in his office in Mountain View, California. And uh, his office was probably the size from this podium to the end of that table, and certainly no wider than the upper part of this stage. And there were some equations on the whiteboard. So journalists, we like to sometimes flatter the people we're interviewing in the hope they'll lower their guard and say things they will regret in the future. Um, so I praised him for all of his great equations, and I said, oh, you know, Eric, that's just amazing. You know, here you are still a practicing engineer. And he said, no, 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 those aren't mine. Whenever I'm not in the office, anybody on the floor can just come in and sit at my desk and, you know, have a little meeting here. Kind of incredible, right? CEO of one of the world's biggest companies, and anyone who feels like can just sit there and use his whiteboard. Uh, he, I asked him to sort of elaborate on that, and he said, and this is Schmidt, whereas in other cultures you can drive your Rolls Royce around and just sort of look rich and have a really good time. In technology, it's not socially okay to have a driver who drives you to work every day. I don't know why, but you'll notice nobody does it. He said, it is okay to have a private jet. Um, so there is this sort of, you know, feeling on the one hand of real egalitarian, so huge gap, but sort of egalitarian culture. The other thing that I was really struck by, and this became particularly clear to me in the aftermath of the financial crisis, was, you know, in a way, sort of the perverse consequence of being a meritocrat, being one of those 69% of the billionaires who built their own business, actually, in a lot of cases, is a distancing from everybody else. Um, one place where I sensed this was talking to people on Wall Street about who caused the financial crisis. And I started doing this in the spring of 2009, and I felt a little bit sort of tentative about it, you know, like asking somebody about their divorce. You wanted to tread carefully, didn't want to hurt their feelings, because I assumed they would be feeling really bad. Um, however, I need not have been so worried. Um, so one guy, and this is the CEO of one of the big Wall Street banks. He's still the CEO. Uh, and he said it wasn't his fault. It was the fault of his cousin who owned <laughs> three cars and a home he could not afford, a subprime mortgage home. Another guy, top fund manager, said it wasn't his cousin, it was his in-laws who were over their skis, borrowed too much consumer credit. My favorite one was a guy who's in private equity, legendary private equity guy, has a place in New York, has a place in Palm Beach. He said, I know who caused the financial crisis. It was my golf caddy in my golf club in Arizona. And this guy bought three condos. When golf caddies are buying three condos, of course there's going to be a financial crisis. Um, another sort of sense, indication of that distance and, and sort of alienation that I encountered was talking to, you know, this slice at the very top about, 
you know, the other side of the coin of globalization, technology revolution, economic liberalization, which is the hollowing out of the middle class. Uh, and, you know, that's something which actually a lot of very good work is being done about here at the LSE by John Van Rienen. So you have this sort of, you know, the division of the workforce into the lousy and the lovely jobs. And when I talk to people about it, they all saw it. I mean, there, there's actually quite a few trades that are based on this notion of continued polarization of the economy and the idea that you should basically invest in companies that sell to the 1% or to really poor people because companies in the middle are not going to be too successful because there aren't going to be that many people in the middle anymore. So they're aware of this, but what I was struck by was a sort of, um, I suppose, a lack of sympathy about that process. So I talked to one guy. Uh, he's a Greenwich-based hedge fund manager, um, and lest you sort of doubt his liberal credentials, he's actually originally Scandinavian, Swedish, uh, and he went to an American liberal arts college. And I moderated a dinner where he was the speaker. Uh, and he commented, talked about this, said it's a political issue, but he said, you know, it's actually going to get worse because, and this is what he said, the low-skilled American worker is the most overpaid worker in the world. Another guy said to me that he himself was worried about it, but a friend of his, and a lot of people would say, you know, this is not what I think, but this is what my other rich friends think. Um, he said the, the, he is the CEO of a major investment fund, and they have an investment committee, and they were talking about this phenomenon. And he said someone on the investment committee said, is this really a problem? His point was that if the transformation of the world economy lifts four people in China and India out of poverty and into the middle class, and meanwhile one American drops out of the middle class, that's not such a bad trade. The most sort of um, striking comment in this vein came from a guy who I found very sympathetic. Uh, he was at the time the CFO of a U.S. technology company. He's moved into venture capital subsequently. And this guy was really the embodiment of the American dream. Uh, so he and his brother and his parents had moved from Taiwan. He told me this great story about how his parents said to him and his brother they were going to be temporarily poor. Which I thought was a great, a great thing to say to your kids. You're going to be temporarily poor, you're going to succeed. And then sure enough, in this sort of, you know, the meritocratic story of the plutocrats, the two kids, absolutely brilliant. His brother grew up to trade credit derivatives on Wall Street, which he still does. Um, this guy said his parents felt he was a failure because he dropped out of his applied mathematics PhD program in Stanford uh, to become a technology. He's not quite a billionaire, but multimillionaire. And so I talked to him about this. And how he put it was this. We demand a higher paycheck than the rest of the world. So if you're going to demand 10 times the paycheck, you need to deliver 10 times the value. It sounds harsh, but maybe people in the middle class need to decide to take a pay cut. The other sort of aspect of distance um, that I encountered, and this is something that became really visible just this year, in, in 2012, or last year, I guess, in 2012 and 2011, as the election campaign sort of started uh, to gather pace, was 
the powerful resentment, and this is now speaking about Americans, at the very top towards Barack Obama. And I initially found this, actually I have to say I still find it quite mysterious because if you look at the actual data, you know, the stock markets now are close to October 2007 levels. Um, as a sort of a stock market returns president, Barack Obama has been pretty fantastic. Uh, and if you look at, I, I cited those Saez, that Saez Piketty data about the income recovery has been much more pronounced at the top than anywhere else. But the level of hostility towards Barack Obama and the sense that he was waging class war uh, based on comments, which I think certainly, I mean, certainly Obama has talked more about income distribution than had previously been acceptable in the U.S. discourse. But I think it's a stretch to see him as out to destroy the capitalist class. That's not the impression you would get from talking to the plutocrats. So I'm just going to give you a few quick quotes to give you a sense of it because it's really quite striking. Um, so there's one guy, hedge fund manager, Democrat. This is someone who was a leading Obama contributor in 2008. In December 2010, he sent out an email, which quickly went viral, with the subject line, Battered Wives. It's written in the first person, uh, in the persona of a battered wife. And it, it says things like, he doesn't mean to hit me. Uh, when he does, he usually doesn't hit me where it shows. I know he really regrets it when he hits me. I'll try to be better. And the battered wife in this email is the hedge fund manager and his friends. And the husband who is doing the beating is Barack Obama. Um, and that, it's really, of course, the email instantly went viral because it's an astonishing thought, right? It's hard to imagine a person more powerful in our society today than a billionaire hedge fund manager in New York in his 40s. And yet these guys really were comparing themselves. They, they saw their situation as analogous to a woman who's being abused physically, violently by her husband. Uh, another example, lest you think this is just a Silicon Valley finance phenomenon, um, that I came across was talking to a guy who is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He started his own semiconductor company and has been a very successful investor in a number of technology companies. And he said to me, and he said this actually on video, um, that he thinks that the way rich people are treated in the United States today is analogous to the way ethnic minorities have been persecuted in the past and that Barack Obama should be particularly sensitive to this and ashamed of it because he knows what it's like. Um, and as for Hitler comparisons, um, they're, no, they're actually, they're, I mean, they're, they're a dime a dozen. Uh, Steve Schwartzman, who I mentioned earlier, got into a lot of trouble because uh, at the when there was an effort to change the tax treatment of carried interest, which I do think is the most egregious loophole in the U.S. tax code, and that's saying a lot because there's a lot of competition. Um, Steve Schwartzman uh, compared it to Hitler's invasion of Poland. Um, but, but I've heard this frequently. Um, another guy, Leon Cooperman, who I profiled for The New Yorker, 
said to me, you know, he said, well, you know, if you think about the conditions which led to the rise of Hitler and the conditions which led to the rise of Barack Obama, they're really very similar. Not that I'm comparing Obama to Hitler, but the conditions are really very similar. Um, and he came back to this three times in separate conversations. So, so there is this real sense, and, and it's, not, it's not fake. You know, they, they don't, they're not making it up. There's this very powerful sense of persecution. Um, a, and I do realize I'm hitting 35, so I'm going to start wrapping up. Um, part of what I think is going on, and this is just a partial explanation, because I do find really mysterious th this idea that at a time actually when the economic privilege is increasing, you should have this sense of being encircled and being under attack. Part of what I think is going on is there is this powerful sense fueled, I think, by the meritocratic nature of the rise of the plutocracy, by the fact that so many of these guys are people who made their money themselves, um, that really they are better than everybody else. Um, I got this, one of the things that I love about the Russian oligarchs, and I realize that's not a sentence you hear spoken <laughs> that often, um, but especially in their early days before they knew what PR was, um, they could be remarkably open about um, their sense of themselves and their role in the economy and how they got there. So I interviewed Mikhail Khodorkovsky a lot, but one of the times I talked to him was in 1998, right after the default and the devaluation of the Russian ruble, and he was in a really bad mood because his bank, which was part of his empire, uh, had lost a lot of money. And he blamed it on the guy who ran the bank, but also on himself, because he had put a non-oligarch in charge of significant capital, which with hindsight he decided was a mistake you should never make. And here's how he put it. If a man is not an oligarch, something is not right with him. Everyone had the same starting conditions. Everyone could have done it. And I think there is that sort of a powerful, you know, almost Ayn Rand uh, sort of Superman Galt's Gulch kind of sentiment there. In closing, I'll give you just a little bit of a further flavor of that. And this, again, this is another on-the-record interview. It's on video. You can watch it if you really like it. Um, talking to Foster Fries. Um, he is a Wyoming mutual fund investor. He, he sort of came to public prominence at the beginning of 2012 because he was the main funder of the super PAC that backed Rick Santorum. Uh, and I talked to him in February and asked him, you know, we talked about the deficits, we talked about income distribution, and I said, well, you know, given the deficit that you're very worried about, maybe rich people should pay more taxes because they have more money. And I'll read you his response. People don't realize how wealthy people self-tax. You know, there was a fellow who was the CEO of Target. In Phoenix, he's created a museum of music. He put in around 200 million of his own money. I have another friend who gave 400 million to a health facility in Nebraska or South Dakota or someplace like that. <laughs> you look at Bill Gates. Just gave 750 million, I think, to fight AIDS. I think we should get rid of taxes as much as we can because you get to decide how you spend your money, 
rather than the government. I mean, if you have a certain cause, an art museum or symphony, and you want to support it, it would be nice if you had the choice to support it. Where we're headed, you'll be taxed, your money taken away, and the government will support it. And then he really got going. If you look at what Steve Jobs has done for us, what Bill Gates has done for society, the government ought to pay them. Why do they collect money from Gates and Jobs for what they've contributed? It's ridiculous. I'm just so amazed at this concept that President Obama says, I'm not going to let half the American people that pay no taxes bear the unfair burden of the other half who are not paying their fair share. It's pretty comical when you think about it. About 46% of the American public pay no income taxes. This was well before you will note Romney's famous 47% remark. And so when that Romney remark came out, actually I felt really sorry for him because he was getting beaten up for a comment which in his class was a truth universally acknowledged. You know, they all, he was just saying to them what they all said, all believed. It was like observing the sun rises in the east. And yet, to the rest of us, it sounded so horrible. And here's the kicker. It's that top 1% that probably contributes more to making the world a better place than the 99%. I've never seen any poor people do what Bill Gates has done. I've never... <laughs> I've never seen poor people hire many people. So I think we ought to honor and uplift the 1%, the ones who have created value. Thank you very much. That was great stuff, Christia. I forgot to mention at the very beginning that uh, Christia will be signing um, copies of the book outside. Uh, when we've uh, finished, so um, avail yourself of that. Um, before we start getting questions, I just want to ask you a lot, actually. Um, I like this idea that... Um, I'm not going to ask you about your fathers, it's all right. But um, hands up those of you who would continue working after your first 100 million. Yeah, that's worrying, isn't it? Yeah. Hands up those of you who've got 100 million. <laughs> Right. Um, get your questions ready. I just want to ask a very quick question, which was just when you went back to the sort of Bill Gates thing at the end. Um, fun enough, I'm going to meet Bill again next week, um, so I can ask him as well. But do you think there is a kind of moral difference amongst the plutocrats? I mean, Bill, does he worry more about the morality of what he's done? Obviously, the fact he's giving it all or lots of it away. Does, would someone like that be distinctively different to the other people you mentioned who actually see themselves as persecutors? There's quite a... So I have three quick comments about that. Um, so the first one is, they all think of themselves as good. Um, and I think probably all of us think of ourselves as good. Um, and that's true of really rich people, too. And I think that part of the reason that you had this very fierce uh, sort of opposition to Barack Obama from, and remember in 2008 these guys backed him, is he started to question what has been an equation in American public life, and I would say to a lesser degree, but in post-Thatcher Britain as well, that 
your wealth was a measure of your public virtue. That, you know, to become rich, to be a successful capitalist, meant, by definition, that you were contributing to society. And Barack Obama, you know, started an argument, which he, he doesn't push too far, saying, it's not always the case. You know, maybe running Bain Capital makes you personally a lot of money, but maybe it's not that great for everybody. So I think that's the first virtue point. Second virtue point, I think, and, and I write in my book, I have a whole chapter about rent-seeking, um, to sort of distinguish between the ways of becoming extremely rich. You know, there is, you invent an iPhone versus you persuade the government of Russia to give you 25% of the country's oil reserves. Um, those are clearly two different paths and add value to differing degrees. Having said that, and, you know, especially that this argument is particularly beloved of the Silicon Valley guys who, you know, if you want to hear someone talk to you about how bankers are evil and are a vampire squid on society, talk to a technology billionaire. You know, they are in love with that vision of the world. And they're not entirely wrong, but it does leave out what I think is, you know, the inevitable... And from a point of view of modern capitalism, the correct desire of everybody to be a rent seeker, of everybody to be a monopolist. I mean, think about Microsoft, think about Google. You can start as a lean, mean, insurgent startup, but your dream is to grow up and be big enough that you can kill all the startups before they're born. And then the final, final point about philanthrocapitalism, and I just want to emphasize this because this was something that I hadn't really thought about before I started reporting my book, is, you know, as this gap becomes greater and as you see tremendous capital concentrated in the hands of a very few people, it has an impact not just on how the economy works but also on politics and on public policy. And one of the things that I think, you know, we haven't, and by we I mean all people who think about this stuff, haven't sort of fully intellectually investigated is to what extent should the big public policy issues of our time be decided in, frankly, rather autocratic and idiosyncratic and personal fashion by people who happen to have several billion dollars. And I think, you know, it's very easy to see this as a pure good when the billionaire in question is spending his money on stuff you believe in. Um, but when the billionaire starts spending his money to push public policy in a direction you don't believe in, then all of a sudden you start having questions in your mind. So, you know, the, the U.S. is perfect, right? Like George Soros, a villain for the right, and they think it's terrible that money accumulated through financial speculation is used, you know, to defend poor people and gay people. Um, David Koch, uh, enemy of the left, and the left thinks it's terrible that his money accumulated in natural resources is used, you know, to limit abortion rights and to pursue, you know, an extreme right agenda. Mm. Interesting. Um, right, let's take some questions. And we've got microphones, so if you could just wait. Can we take the gentleman right in the middle there first because he's had his hands up and can you bring your microphone to the guy in the brown coat in the second row please Mr. Yeah. Just, but let's take the one up there first yeah. guy in the middle with, with the glasses please uh, 
Yes, I, I find it quite depressing that you're part of a general trend stoking the politics of envy in a quite similar way to uh, as happened in the in, in the 1930s. It seems that the only fundamental way to, you didn't say what solution you're prescribing, but it seems to be implied that it's higher taxes. I don't know what makes you think that governments can allocate resources more efficiently than the private sector. I don't know if we want more examples like the U.S. federal government investing in Solyndra or General Motors or other defunct enterprises. Um, I agree with you that there should be more vigorous antitrust laws where, where, where there are monopolies that uh, emerge. But uh, uh, the businesses, like you said, these self-made businesses uh, hire significant numbers of people and surely what matters are absolute standards and jobs created rather than uh, disparities in wealth which are inevitable and have existed since the beginning of time. Okay, so there are a few different issues in there, and I'll try to untangle some of them. Um, to the first point, you know, does it constitute the politics of envy to talk about income inequality, especially at the very top? I don't think so. And I think actually, and that's why I started with that Branko Milanovic quote, that one of the things that I think is really problematic is for there to be a taboo on sort of talking about and looking at what is happening with the income distribution. I absolutely agree, actually, that untangling both the drivers and what you do about it is really hard. Um, and that's why I emphasized that I think it's a mistake to underplay the benign economic forces that are part of this. So I do really think a tendency that I see sometimes on the left that I think is a mistake and wrong to say, you know, this is all about political capture. Um, this is just about the rich controlling the political system. And if only we could change that, everything would be great. I think that doesn't give paint a true picture of what has happened. And it overlooks the absolutely positive aspects of what's going on. You know, the, the Foster Freeze point about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, there's something there. Um, second point on government, on should money be in the hands of government or should money be in the hands of the rich, I don't talk about that. Th this book is really about, because I felt there wasn't enough um, really looking at what's driving the 1% and who are they. So this is not about how do you deal with it. Um, having said that, Look, I think that part of the problem with a more redistributive political agenda is that I think that the people who are in favor of that haven't worked hard enough at making government better. And I do think that, you know, our experience as consumers is sort of perversely more empowering very often than our experience as citizens. So I, I think that that absolutely right to have that as an issue. Um, point, two points maybe more on the other side are, and, and I didn't get into this so much, but I do write about it. Third and really important point, a, a thing, so I think it's quite hard to untangle and say this is the exact reason that causes it, that causes rising income inequality, because I think there are a number of reasons. Um, one of the things that I think we should all be thinking about more is 
what are the consequences of this divide in, especially in a Western democracy. So what, and you know, Brandeis, um, the American jurist said, speaking of the Gilded Age, you can have democracy or you can have great concentrations of wealth, but you cannot have both. Is he right? Is he wrong? It's an important question to ask. And I think actually a lot of the political tensions we're seeing in Western democracies are around the clash of these things. Um, and it's important, it is really important to be conscious of that, be analyzing it, be aware of it. Fourth and final point on the jobs. Um, I think there is a real possibility, and I actually brought, because I was going to mention this book to everybody, I think this is a great book, not my own, Race Against the Machine by Eric Bjornelson and Andrew McAfee. These are two MIT economists, and they put forward an argument that we could be moving into a much lower employment, or not so much lower employment, but that this polarization between lovely and lousy jobs could be becoming much, much more extreme. Um, my sort of you know, dystopian one-liner is, is it possible we're moving into a world, let's say we get rid of all rent-seeking, right? Let's say there's no rent-seeking, let's say we solve all of these problems of political capture, which I think rising income inequality makes harder and harder to deal with. You know, it, capture is easier when you have extreme disparity. But let's say we somehow manage to deal with all of that. There still remains the possibility, I think, that purely because of where technology is going, we could, move, we could find ourselves inhabiting a world where, and this is my sort of sensationalist tabloid version of it, um, the, our society is divided between the 0.1% who invent Google and the rest of us who give them massages. Um, and, and that, you know, maybe that's going to be how it is. And, and maybe that's okay. Like, maybe it's good for technology to do all these things and better to be massaging the Googlers than, you know, to be going out in the fields and, you know, sowing our crops by hand and milking our cows by hand. That, that's not such a great life either. But, but if we're moving into that structure, even let's say it's totally meritocratic, it's just the geniuses who become super rich through their own genius, um, this is a shift in how the rewards are distributed. And I think society, as, as especially democratic societies, really need to be thoughtful about it. And I don't think it's the politics of envy to be thinking about it. On the contrary, I think if you actually believe in democratic capitalism, which I personally do, this is the central issue. And failure to grapple with it is going to mean it gets wrecked. Okay. Next question, please, Peter. I think your book is a completely brilliant taxonomy of a very undocumented subject. It's so fascinating that social scientists study the poor endlessly and don't study the rich. And it's very balanced. Nonetheless... Your subjects come out outstandingly unattractive group, <laughs> like very high-functioning Asperger's people with, uh, with, with a huge empathy deficit. And I think it's something Wayland Young anticipated in his Rise of the Meritocracy, Little British Book. Now, why, given that, given that some of the things you describe are in the public domain, that fantastic... Dif growing differential between, for instance, CEOs in America and the people who work for them. Those things are in the public domain. 
why is there no radicalization in America? What, is it about the neocon rhetorical assault and the power of, you mentioned the Cokes, I think we'd probably say the Cokes or something, the people with a big K, the unaccountable John Birch people who fund the Tea Party. Is it that they've removed great blockages, blocks of American language in a sort of rather Orwellian way? How has that happened? How is there no radicalization? Well, I, I do wonder about um, the lack of radicalization, especially in America, but maybe you know more broadly in Western democracies. Um, I don't know the definitive answer, but I can tell you a few ideas that I've had. Um, I think ideology matters. Um, I think the ideology is not only, you know, Orwellian that we've been deluded. I think partly there's some truth to the ideology, right? I mean, you know, my first experience as a journalist was covering the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it's great the Soviet Union collapsed. And that had, I think, rightly, a very powerful impact on all of us, that, you know, there's no real alternative. And to the people who say, well, you know, there's the Beijing consensus now, and there's the Chinese version of state capitalism, you know, I don't think any of us really want to live there. I mean, we might want to go move to China to make a lot of money, but few people see that as a preferable political and economic model. So partly there's that. Partly, I do think, I mean, to the politics of envy question, I think in a lot of ways, you know, Pacha, the financial crisis of 2008, um, in a lot of ways, modern capitalism works really well. And we see that. And, you know, people don't want to reject that. I also think, again, to that politics of envy question, the state, in a lot of ways, doesn't seem that great. Although I must say, as a Canadian and someone who has... I've, I've had babies in Canada, Britain, and the United States... And I got to tell you, a national health care system is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, so that's an example for me of the state really working quite well. Final thing, um, two, two more, penultimate and final thing. Um, Raghu Rajan of the University of Chicago, former chief economist of the IMF, I think made a brilliant argument that prior to the financial crisis, um, that there was a sort of subconscious political response to rising income inequality in the United States and probably in Britain too in the form of increased consumer credit. And that that had the consequence of masking for most people the fact that income inequality was rising because actually they were consuming more stuff than ever before. I think that was true of then. Of now, um, you know, final argument is, you know, I do think I've compared, and, you know, in my book I do try to draw some historical analogies, but if you compare the political response today to, I think, some good comparative periods are the Great Depression and then the Long Depression in the 19th century, the bottom is higher now in the West than it was before. I'm not at all, you know, diminishing how corrosive and terrible poverty is, but it's simply true that as a society we're a lot wealthier. And, and maybe that mutes the political reaction. Okay. Great. Right, let's take some more questions from... Down here, the lady in the second row. That's... And then, do you want to go right to the very back, the guy right at the very back? It's always... Okay. Please. So, 
the NGO that I work for believes that the top 1% and the companies that they run <coughs> sorry, um, have a profound role in driving poverty in the developing world and that they often have a really seriously negative impact on people's lives. And I was just wondering, I don't know if this came up in your discussions with these people, but is it something that they understand and like think about and agree with and want to change, or is it something that they... That in they the developing world or the developed world? Well, either, really. I mean, they obviously have impacts everywhere. But, um, but, but what's your argument? But my, the, the argument of my NGO is that it has a pretty serious, profound, serious and profound impact in the developing world. Um, and is it something that they're aware of? Did you address that argument at all? Did it come up? And, and do they disagree or agree with that argument? And how do they feel about it? Um, so actually, I would say, you know, the 1% view, and I have to say I actually tend to agree with this, um, is that, you know, if we're talking about sort of impact of um, Western financial capitalism on developing world, um, I think the consensus view would be what Ben Bernanke said at his press conference last week, um, that it has been the best poverty alleviation program invented by humanity. Um, and he would cite, you know, the hundreds of millions of people raised out of absolute poverty in China and in India as an example. And actually that's something that quite, you know, people who, I'll give you, one example would be Jim O'Neill, um, the Goldman Sachs chief economist who came up with the idea of BRICS. He's a really smart and thoughtful person about this stuff. And one of the things that he's said to me is, um, if not an excuse for a reason to not be so worried about um, income polarization in the developed economies is the very positive impact in the developing economies. So the point of view would be directly opposite to yours. Um, I think that what that, you know, what, personally, I think that the rise of the emerging markets is on balance a terrific thing. A lot of people's lives are being hugely improved. What I think we tend to miss sometimes in that broad story is we forget that what's happening in those countries is really analogous to our own industrial revolution. And because the end result of the industrial revolution was really terrific, we forget that getting there you know, involved dark satanic mills. And it's not so great sometimes to be in the meat grinder of the dark satanic mills. Okay, pause there. Gentleman at the very back, Mike. Yes. Uh, I think your, your answer answered half of my question because my point was going to be, is it necessarily, I mean, is it de facto a bad thing or is it a problem that there's such a great disparity? I mean, it's a very, very tiny percentage. Uh, as to hollowing out of the middle classes, I mean, people are generally richer. I, I'm not saying it, that there isn't suffering and, and bad things happening generally, but the fact that this very tiny, tiny group is so far ahead of the generality of the people is not necessarily in itself a bad thing. I accept they're ancillary problems. They could capture power. These things happen. But massive gap is simply a massive gap. It, it, a massive gap does not entail that other people are suffering. And I, my question is, do you think that a gap in itself is a bad thing? Um, so two quick answers to that. The first is there is now, and again, um, sorry for all the additional homework, but this will be fun for anyone who cares enough to come out here on a Monday night. Um, there's a very fun online debate right now between 
uh, Paul Krugman and Joe Stiglitz. Uh, and Joe wrote a piece over the weekend where he argued, and, and this is you know, a view that some people are starting to take, that inco- rising income inequality per se actually cramps economic growth. And if income inequality increases too much, economic growth is constrained. Uh, and he makes some arguments around that, you know, the core ones being the middle class gets squeezed in, an, in, in a situation of extreme income inequality, and that engine of economic growth, which is middle class consumption, ceases to exist. And then his other argument is, you know, in societies like that, you don't invest enough in the middle class. Interestingly, Paul Krugman, who could hardly be characterized as a neocon, um, has said he disagrees with Joe. Uh, and he said, you know, he wishes it were the case. He wishes he believed that the economic facts showed that high income inequality constrains economic growth, but he thinks the case is not yet proven. Um, so uh, I don't have a Nobel Prize in economics, so I'm not going to take sides between Krugman and Stiglitz. Um, what I do think is an issue, and and which I think actually is not sufficiently thought about in answering your question, which I think is a key one, is the political economy of rising income inequality. And that, to me, is really hard to deal with. And to me, really very dangerous. You know, what inevitably that greater economic power for a very tiny group does translate into a bigger political voice. And the temptation in, in ways small and large to use that voice to skew the rules in your own favor if you're at the very top I think is tremendously great. And, you know, maybe we can have an ideal, you know, I don't know, Athenian polity and be very good at constraining that power. But we sure had better be aware that that is an absolutely huge issue. And to me, a good example of the danger is actually U.S. education, where, you know, I think in this sort of these winner-take-on, and British to a lesser extent, but maybe heading there too, in this kind of winner-take-all economy, even if, let's say, you totally believe in it, you see this figure of 69% of the 400 Forbes billionaires in 2011 being self-made, you say, yay, this shows the system works. They are also increasingly very well educated. And what I observe in the United States is elite education being hard, you know, being captured by the elites apart from, you know, the one in a million math genius that comes up in the projects. But increasingly, you have to be upper middle class to even have a shot at that kind of stuff. Okay. Let's pause it there. Let's take somebody from this block, because we haven't taken anybody from there. The gentleman in the um, purple jumper? Something like that. Uh, yeah, and this is kind of related to some of the stuff you've just said, but I was wondering what you think the next generation of plutocrats will look like. So do you think there'll be a reactionism, or do you think that more will emerge, or do you think because they have such a high concentration of power that we won't see the kind of new people emerging as a consequence of the fact that they have a lot of control? And will they be their kids? Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think it's a, really, it's a really interesting and important question. Um, certainly what you saw 
in, say, the Industrial Revolution in the United States was the U.S. plutocracy of the late 19th century looking a lot like the current one, and then the money being handed down to the next generation. Um, and that causes all sorts of problems, partly because the next generation you know, tends not to be as good at business as their parents, just being the child, you know, it's what Warren Buffett calls the lucky sperm club. Um, uh, and it, it raises more political problems because I think quite rightly, actually, as a society, especially if, you know, you're an open democratic capitalist society, we do tend to be more sympathetic towards the, sel- the money of the, the wealth of the self-made billionaire versus the inherited wealth. Um, so I, I think it's a central question, and it's something um, that you know we should watch really closely. You know, for for what it's worth, I do think at the very very top, it's striking to me how much turnover there is. And, and this same study that I mentioned um, of the Forbes 400 actually showed that the turnover is increasing which I think makes intuitive sense to us if, if you, know, you believe the pace of uncertainty and economic change is increasing. What I think would also be interesting to track is what happens in that broader category, not just of the billionaires, but of the top 1%. And you know, some research that I certainly buy, which is telling there, um, is done by Miles Korak at the University of Ottawa. Um, which has been popularized by Alan Kruger, head of the Council of Economic Advisors, um, showing actually a pretty clear correlation between rising income inequality and social mobility. And he does show that as income inequality increases, overall social mobility decreases. Kruger calls it the Great Gatsby Curve. Yeah. And talking of the Great Gatsby, that is my favorite quote about rich people which is Fitzgerald's, of course, which was? Uh, which, it's actually, the believe it or not. different from us? Yeah, and it's not actually a direct quote. It's yeah. complicated, but the basic line is, the rich are different from us. Um, they know what it is to have money early. Yeah. And, and so that's actually kind of interesting because that's not the difference between today's rich and the rest of us. They don't have a lot of money early. Yeah. So, so should we come down the front? I think this gentleman here, the Whites, had his hand up a lot. Uh, I was interested by something you said quite early in your talk, which was that when the financial crisis hit, you thought the book project was scuppered and this phenomenon of plutocracy was going to end. I wondered why you thought that, so whether because less money to go around or there'd be more political pressure for redistribution. So if you thought that was going to happen, by what specific mechanism and why didn't it happen? I thought for two reasons. First of all, a big driver of rising income inequality has been financial services. Um, And I thought that we would be in for much tougher, a much tougher wave of regulation, um, which would really sort of cut back on um, the super incomes that we see in financial services. And there has been some, but just less than I thought in that moment. And more broadly, I thought, yeah, that we would have kind of a broader wave of, you know, social backlash. Do, do just thought of it, do many of them actually lose, though? Do plutocrats ever stop being plutocrats? People do drop out of billionaire status. 
It does happen. But just a run. They don't. Well, it, I mean, yeah, it, it does happen sometimes. I mean, look, Khodorkovsky's in jail. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it was a dramatic. That's, that's extreme, it. but it can happen. Right. Um, can we go halfway down there, please? There's the, that guy. Hi, this is more related to uh, plutocrats in Europe because uh, recently the Holland tax, the 75% tax, is threatening to push out billionaires from France. And also, do you believe that the outlook for Europe is bleak with the fact that uh, it seems that Europe reached its peak in uh, economy and population growth? And do you think that uh, Europe's plutocrats are moving now to the east and to the west rather than staying here? and that uh, wealth is moving more west and east? Okay. Um, so let me maybe take a, a corner of that. Um, an, an interesting thing that that question touches on um, is that capital, especially capital at the very, very top, as I talked about, is global, and governments and taxation are national. And I think that is another complicating factor in the relationship, you know, between society and wealth at the very, very top. Uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what the answer there is, but you know, there is definitely. I think we're going to see more and more forum shopping. I think a constraint on that may be, you know, um, with all due respect to Gérard Depardieu. Um, you know, part of what taxes pay for is a rule of law society uh, and a society with a certain sort of, you know, common level of living. Um, you may not want, you know, France probably embodies that to the greatest extreme, but, you know, maybe, I don't know, let's say a Canadian level um, of that kind of society, which does cost money, some people might be willing to pay that versus a more wild East-type environment that Russia offers. You know, having said that, I, I think we're going to see more of this. Um, an interesting phenomenon that I allude to is something called seasteading. I don't know if anyone here has heard about this. Um, this is sort of the extreme embodiment of the, the uh, Ayn Rand, Galtz, Gulch uh, phenomenon where actually there is an effort to build islands in international waters, which because they would be in international waters would not be subject to the rule of law. And the <coughs> idea being that you could move there and create your community, your taxation setup, whatever you wanted, and just have that there. Um, I'm not going to take the question on kind of the longer term potential of Europe, including demographics, which I think is really interesting, um, but maybe beyond the purview strictly of our conversation here. Okay. We've only got time for one last question. You have been with your hand up a lot, so please. I always avoid the person in front. Apologies. Clearly the wrong place to sit. Um, just two very quick points. Um, the first one being the comments made by the uh, 0.1% uh, with regards to them earning their place there and being self-made um, and how we can look at that against the research and the work done by Malcolm Gladwell in his book Outliers which actually points very much and completely destroys that argument for them um, and a second point, if we look at uh, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism which again is uh, a book by an academic in Oxford I believe 
you've made a lot of references to the Industrial Revolution and going through that and making historical references. However, when America and the United Kingdom were going through that, there was massive amounts of protectionism. It was very much the system was set up for us. Whereas now, if we look at the, uh, the economies of where we've gone into, the World Bank has gone in, has lent money, has told them to lever up their economies naturally. Their growth went down after they started to accept capitalist forms uh, of growth very much backed by the World Bank. Um, so it hasn't been, it's argued, such a great emphasis and is, has been a detriment to the living standards of those in the bottom in the developing economy. So I wonder if you could, could touch on those. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think the outliers um, argument is really interesting and is kind of a sister argument to the plutocrat vision of oneself. Um, and look, I mean, these are, these are smart, sophisticated people. At some level, they get that. Um, at another level, and I don't think, you know, I think this is a human tendency, um, we rarely see our great successes um, as a result of chance. Um, we tend to see our great successes, you know, I'm thinking about my own, maybe think about yours. You know, do you really think to yourself, hey, I was just a really lucky guy in the right place at the right time, I had nothing to do with it. Um, we tend to think it is due to our own hard work, strategic thinking, innate, brilliant capacities. And I think if you're a plutocrat, you think that even more. Um, and, you know, some of the most interesting conversations I've had have been you know, with the people who are thoughtful about this, and they really will say to you, look, it's hard, it, it's, it's a little bit like the bubble people talk about around a U.S. president, that it is actually hard to maintain your equilibrium and, you know, your sense of normalcy and understanding yourself in context, because after all, you are a billionaire, <laughs> and you are surrounded by fawning sycophants, um, you are surrounded by people who want things from you. You are surrounded by validation in the world that you're pretty magnificent. And I think even if, you know, in the abstract, you know, you would accept the argument that you happen to be the beneficiary of a very lucky set of circumstances, I think in your lived life, um, you know, it's hard to remind yourself of that every day. And I don't think it's because they're particularly bad people. I think, you know, if any of us lived for five years as a billionaire, especially not that it was money we inherited, but money that we made ourselves, we'd all think we're pretty great and magnificent, too. Um, uh, on um, the developing world argument, look, I think that the parallels between the Industrial Revolution and today are obviously just parallels. Um, these are very different environments, precisely because, as you say, you know, I, I like to think of it as sort of a twin gilded age, because I think what's happening in the developing world is two revolutions at the same time. The industrial revolution plus all the transformations that the Western world is going through. So they're getting the industrial revolution plus technology revolution plus globalization all at once. And that is different. Um, on the point of impact on the very poorest, I mean, again there, I, I'm not sure that's particularly where the Industrial Revolution parallel falls down, because I do think in our own, you know, historical memory of the Industrial Revolution, we do tend to forget how bad it was for a lot of people. You know, and we talk about it as winners and losers, and, you know, some people had to lose, 
But if you were one of those people, it was pretty devastating. And I I think that is definitely the case in the developing world. Final developing world comment. What is sort of interesting on, on the point of protectionism and mercantilism and all the rest of it is, you know, that is sort of interestingly coming back a little bit into vogue right now at, at the macro level. Um, and post one of the changes, I think, to economic orthodoxy post-2008 is people starting to say, you know, capital controls may be not such a bad thing. Yeah. Okay, listen, we've run out of time. Uh, I think it's been a really good conversation to have at the LSE. I always think that... Uh, Perhaps half the people come to the LSE because they want to sort of stop people becoming plutocrats, and the other half come here because they want to become plutocrats. Um, and I'm sure tonight will have helped both those groups, actually. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to Linklaters who have been supporting uh, this lecture series with Polis, and, of course, very, very pleased that Christia could be w- with us tonight to share her thoughts from her book. Thanks a lot. Okay, and thank you for braving the snow.